welcome to this very special season finale episode of National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And as per protocol, as you've probably grown accustomed to if you've been with us for four whole seasons of our show, today's episode is a celebration it's a celebration of our past season. It's a celebration of our favorite movies. And it's a celebration of one very special location at which our favorite movies filmed. Today, we have a very exciting interview for you with an expert coming from, drumroll please, M. I hated that sound. Coming from <laughs> the Library of Congress. We heard your comments. No, we saw your comments. We heard your voices through your comments. And we know how much you all enjoy the scenes that happen at the Library of Congress, how incredible it is as a location for filming and for plot points in both National Treasure films. And so we are so excited to bring you today's episode. But more on that in just a minute, because you all know how we have to kick off this, this discussion today, right? It's our customary Screams from Parkington Lane. As you probably know, Screams from Parkington Lane is the very brief segment where Emily and I, and sometimes some of our listeners, explain to you, our lovely audience, just how much national treasure has infiltrated our daily lives. And we admit that to you with some very um, detailed examples and case studies. So Emily, I understand you have a scream for me this week because you actually texted me about it when it happened. I do. So I have street parking now, so I have to parallel park a lot. Gross. And I uh, was parallel parking right in front of this, this car that I see relatively frequently. And they have a front vanity plate. And on the vanity plate are some Greek letters, I'm assuming from a fraternity or sorority that they were a part of. And it was sunny outside when I parked. So the sun was reflecting off of this front plate and onto the ground. And when I looked down at the ground, the letters were there. So there were Greek letters there, but they were like flipped oh in reverse. And it felt like it was, it felt like a clue from National Treasure. That was like my first thought. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm just glad you didn't go uh, trying to interpret the clue. You probably would have wasted so much time that day. <laughs> probably <laughs> what about you all yeah I have one it's a quick one but it actually it means a lot to me so I was doing some work on the job you know my actual day job recently and I got a really nice email um, from a colleague who was praising me in an in a in a message to my boss basically and the specific wording that she used in her email, I'm not kidding, when she was describing me was, and Aubrey is a national treasure. Ah! I was like, I'm saving this email for all of eternity, number one. Number two, I must write this down in a little note section of my phone so that I do not forget to say this on the episode. And number three, to top it all off, my boss, who's also on this email chain and who knows about our little side gig here, Em, she replied just to me and said, this, uh, her particular wording did not go unnoticed, smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> it made me very happy. But hey, Em, I actually have another scream to share from one of our listeners. 
Oh, yay. Yeah. So uh, folks who've been listening for a while have met Anthony. He was one of our super fans who participated in our latest super fan bonus episode. He's awesome on Twitter. You should go check him out at monkey noodles. And anyway, Anthony sent us a message a few weeks ago and shared his own scream. He said that he recently watched the movie, the three, five, five, which I'm pretty sure you and I talked about, um, Mm -hmm on the show M. And of course, for those of you who are unfamiliar, the 355 has Diane Kruger in it. And he shared with us that once the movie was over and he was talking about it to his mom and a friend, he just kept saying, you know, and Abigail was so cool in this part or (laughs) Abigail did this or Abigail did that. And it, it like never dawned on him for a while that he kept calling her Abigail while talking about a movie that had absolutely nothing to do with national treasure. But that's how he saw her. I'm on, almost positive that when I talked to you about it, Emily, I was like, I don't even know her character's name in this movie. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's accurate. So it turns out that's not just a phenomenon for me. It is also for Anthony. Thank you, Anthony, for sharing this with us. And anyone who's listening right now, if you have screams to share, you can always send them to us on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. We are available for your listening ears on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Good Pods. Please go ahead, like, subscribe, rate, review, do whatever you can on those various platforms. Let us know your thoughts, your feelings, what you're thinking. I already said thoughts about our episodes. And like Aubrey said, if you do have any screens, please share them with us while you're at it. Please feel free to go ahead and check out the link in the link tree at the top of our bios to our merch store where you can buy any kind of national treasure hunt gear that you want to represent the podcast and what we do here. All right. So what we're all really here for, right? (laughs) is to intro this episode, this conversation about the Library of Congress. Now, when we get into the conversation with our special guest, we will give a little bit more context and remind you of what scenes we are referencing in the movies. But right off the top, I feel the need to remind everyone listening in that you know, you might remember the Library of Congress for being like the star of National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets because we actually spend a substantial amount of time in the library or referencing the library or caring about something found in the library in that movie. But the Library of Congress is also seen in the first National Treasure as well. It's very brief. It is the scene that comes pretty much right after Ben and Riley have just unsuccessfully um, warned all the people they can think of that the declaration is going to be stolen. And so Ben decides that he will be the one to steal it to protect it. And Riley, at first, since he is the audience stand and he is the logical one, says, this cannot be done and let me prove it to you. So he takes Ben to the Library of Congress to try to show him all this documentation and prove why this can't happen. So that's the context in the first movie. The second movie, as we just referenced, it's all about the Book of Secrets, and the movie suggests that the book is found in the Library of Congress. Is it actually found there? You're going to have to listen to this episode to find out. Um, but yeah, um, I don't know that we need to preface this much more. Do you, Is there anything else about these scenes that you'd want to bring up? 
I think the only thing that I would mention is that there are a lot of behind the scenes or no, there are a lot of deleted scenes from the Library of Congress that are available on YouTube that you should all definitely go ahead and check out because it gives even more context for the movie and for the, the interview itself. Totally. Thank you so much for mentioning that. I completely agree. Okay, so our special guest today is Abby Yokelson, and Abby is a reference specialist in the main reading room at the Library of Congress. So she, you, as you will hear in just a moment, uh, she really enjoys the National Treasure movies, um, which we thought was really refreshing since, you know, it can be hit or miss when you talk to experts um, in this context. Some people really love the movies, some love to hate it, some hate to love it. You know, you get you get a little bit of everything, I would say. Definitely. And in this conversation with Abby, we learn a lot about the history and the treasures, for lack of better terms, <laughs> housed within the Library of Congress itself. And then we also learn, as per usual, some interesting behind the scenes secrets of the filming on premises. So what are a couple of things you might expect to learn from this episode? Well, number one, there are some potentially unexpected connections between the Library of Congress and the Declaration of Independence. There are tunnel systems between the Library of Congress's many buildings, and they were actually referenced in National Treasure. And here's another fun one. You'll learn a little bit about a special item penned by Queen Victoria related to Abraham Lincoln. And this item is housed at the Library of Congress. So those are just a few little hints to hopefully get you excited for what you're about to hear. We are so grateful for Abby for spending so much quality time with us and sharing all of her insight. We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. So without further ado, please enjoy our interview with Abby Yokelson. Well, first and foremost, Abby, we are so thrilled that you are joining us today on National Treasure Hunt. I've got to say between you and me, of all of the places that National Treasure has filmed, we are very much aware via the online National Treasure universe that the Library of Congress is probably the most beloved of all of the viewers <laughs> out there. So it is an honor to have you here today. Thank you very much. I'm really thrilled to be here to talk about the library. Of course. So would you mind starting us off by just introducing yourself, your background, and your role at the Library of Congress? Sure. Um, so my name is Abby Yokelson, and I'm a, a reference specialist, essentially a reference librarian in the main reading room at the Library of Congress. That, of course, is the place where scenes take place in both of the films. And um, I know uh, when you interviewed a person from uh, Mount Vernon, she said she had been there 15 years, and I can tell you I'm double that plus a few. I've, I've been at the Library of Congress since uh, 1988, actually, um, and clearly I love my job if I've stayed that long. Very clearly. But um, anyhow, uh, we're reference librarians when we're at the reference desk, meaning I can answer, I try and answer all kinds of questions basically in the humanities and social sciences, but the main reading room has a little something for everyone. So we're often also directing people to other parts of the library. There are 20 different reading rooms. So, um, but my subject specialty, we all have a subject specialty and we get 
questions in that area is English and American literature. So when I say I'm answering questions, I'm answering them from people from all over the world. Well, we're an American library. We really are very, very international in our scope. And so uh, I answer questions from people in person, by the telephone, via chat, and hundreds via Ask a Librarian. That's where most of my literature-based questions come in. Um, and because I'm the English and American literature specialist, I'm also sort of monitoring receipts in literature and recommending books that we purchase from uh, UK, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. And um, I don't know, I teach classes on how to use the library. Occasionally I write blog posts. Um, of course, everybody gets to be on committees in whatever job they're in. And right now I'm on two pretty fun committees. One is about the Library of Congress uh, prize in fiction that we award each year. And the other one is called Crime Classics, where we're doing um, a set uh, refocusing on uh, various crime books uh, over the years. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, a copy of what the British Library did with crime classics. And so um, I actually get to read some books and do book reports for the committee meetings. So um, in a nutshell, that's pretty well what I do, but this is definitely the first time I've ever been interviewed for a podcast. So something new to add to my resume there. No, thank you so much. That's great. Um, it's kind of going along, you were talking a little bit about some of the things that the Library of Congress does. Can you give us a brief history of the Library of Congress and kind of go a little more into what it does uh, it, and kind of focus on what the relationship is with, I guess, the federal government itself? Okay. Um, well, we were founded in 1800. Uh, as a very small legislative library, I think the initial budget was $5,000 to buy books to be used by members of Congress. So very focused legislative library. Um, and actually, we are a part of the legislative branch. You, when you say federal government, you know, the three branches of government and most things like the State Department are part of the executive branch. We're part of the legislative branch, even though the Librarian of Congress is appointed by the President of the United States. But uh, we're, we're definitely Congress related. Um, so formed in 1800. And then the really big thing that happened in 1814, um, you guys know a lot of history, so you might remember there's the War of 1812. The British marched on Washington and burned like the White House. There's that famous story of Dolly Madison fleeing with the uh, portrait of Washington. And um, books made really good kindling for uh, setting the Capitol on fire. So the entire collection was lost at that time in 1814. Um, Thomas Jefferson by then is retired down at Monticello, former president. He also has the biggest private library in the United States. The man uh, was a total Renaissance man in terms of his interests, languages he spoke. And he was devastated when he heard that, that the Library of Congress had burned. And he then offered to sell his library to Congress for whatever they valued it at. He, did, he didn't tell them the price, they could set the value. And um, 
And you would think this would be a slam dunk. Yes, what a great opportunity to buy. But then as now, there, there were members of Congress who thought, well, what do we need to know about philosophy or music for? And what do we care about all those other languages? And um, so there was quite a bit of debate, but eventually they bought it um, slightly over uh, $6,000. Um, I think it was about 23,000 books. I should know all this. But what happened is instead of being a small legislative library is we, we had this van, uh, vision of being a universal collection of knowledge because Jefferson collected in so many different subjects and from many different parts of the world in so many languages. So we just greatly expanded the, the subject matter that the Library of Congress was interested in, as well as the size. So that, that was a huge change for us. We were in the Capitol building. And then the other really big moment in our history was 1870. Uh, the then Librarian of Congress, Spofford, uh, Ainsworth Spofford, convinced Congress that copyright should be centralized at the Library of Congress. That was the way it worked in most other countries, national libraries. But in the US, it had been decentralized at courthouses throughout the United States. So starting in 1870, stuff just comes flooding into the Library of Congress. And then you start to see pictures that looks like scenes from Hoarders show, you know, giant stacks of stuff. Nobody can find anything. They're all about to tip over. And this led to Spofford uh, convincing um, Congress that we really needed our own building. And so finally, what we now call the Jefferson Building was open in 1897. It was just called the Congressional Library, the Library of Congress. We renamed them at some point. Um, it was also referred to as the Book Palace of the American People. So you were talking about everybody seeing the scenes, just how gorgeous it is as they're running up the steps and into the Great Hall. Um, so it really was uh, quite extraordinary in that way. Um, so we started off with this tiny little legislative library. At this point, we have somewhere around 171 million items. So we are the largest library in the world. I mean, you know, we're the United States. We have to be the biggest at everything, no question about it. Um, and um, we're still called the Library of Congress. And in my mind, this makes things pretty difficult because we're a de facto national library. We really do serve all of the American people, in fact, anyone, anywhere in the world. And we do have a prominent place in terms of big national libraries, but we're not actually called a national library. So we're the federal government. Most, the vast, vast, vast majority of our funding comes from the federal government, but we do have some private funds, um, not quite like the Smithsonian, which is definitely public and private, but we do have some some big endowments, some very generous donors. We've got lots of special collections through donations and, and other kinds of special projects. So, uh, but, but that's our funding. We're overseen by a joint committee of the library um, in, in Congress. And um, I don't know, I think I hope I've covered it. I, I should say that in addition to the Jefferson Building, which is the one people think of as the Library of Congress. We actually have three buildings on Capitol Hill. We have the Adams Building, which is uh, right behind the Jefferson Building. It opened in 1938, is supposedly a beautiful example of an Art Deco building. And then 
the story of the Library of Congress is we're always running out of space. We always are getting more and more material. <laughs> we think we build the building that'll last us the next hundred years and the next thing you know, there's stuff all over the floor again. And so the Madison building was finished, opened in 1980, 81. And those are all three right across from each other, right by the Capitol. But we also have offsite storage in suburban Maryland, Fort Meade, and another place. We have a huge audiovisual conservation center down in um, Culpeper, Virginia. So that's where our films are, audio recordings, everything in audiovisual nature. And we have offices all around the world. People don't realize that. But in countries where the publishing process isn't so established that makes it easy to acquire materials, we have special Library of Congress offices in places like New Delhi and Jakarta and Rio, um, uh, Nairobi, uh, to bring materials to the Library of Congress, as well as dealers in many of the other countries, like I mentioned, the UK or Australia and stuff. We have people sending us materials. So um, I, I, I could go on and on about the history <laughs> of the library. I will tell you right now, 2016, uh, Dr. Carl Hayden, was appointed as Librarian of Congress. She was the 14th Librarian of Congress, first woman, first African-American. I mean, people had tears in their eyes all over the country, apparently. They were watching period, watching, you know, sessions for her swearing in ceremony. What really thrilled us is she was actually a librarian. She, uh, we, we had early on had librarians, then we had a long run of scholars, public intellectuals, whatever you want to call them. But to get an actual librarian back in place was pretty exciting. Somebody who really knew what this oh, was all about. That's so, amazing. That is, yeah. that is so cool. Honestly, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us because I don't know, I'm going to speak for Emily and myself and probably most of our listeners in saying that I had no idea the, <laughs> the work was that expansive, the geographic reach was that expansive, that there were so many facilities that, that you all have, etc. It actually reminds me a little bit, Emily, of when we were chatting with the National Archives folks and they were like, yeah, I mean, everyone thinks of the big building on the National Mall, but there are other sites all over the place, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And the other thing I should point out about people hear the word library and mostly they think about books on a shelf, you know, books, the printed word, whatever, periodicals. That's just really a small part of the library. I said 171 million, that's maybe, I don't know, 40 million things. But we have everything you can imagine. We have millions and millions of manuscripts and recordings, films, you know, we, we have this whole national film registry and music and, and song sheets and um, early vaudeville stuff. So it's just hard to tell you all the different formats we have and all the different things. We've had a National Library Service for blind and print disabled, uh, a reading room when, when the 1897 building opened, there was a special reading room for the blind, they said. And now we, we send out materials, audio materials uh, all over the United States. Anyone who qualifies can sign up for it and get that kind of thing. So there, there are lots of aspects about the Library of Congress that people don't know about. I should, I should of course mention the Congressional Research Service where we have several hundred people who are doing research specifically for Congress. They, they are the ones who are writing reports, answering questions, briefing um, members of Congress. So mm. that's a huge part of the library, you know, our title, but um, 
there are just lots of aspects that people aren't aware of. Uh, I think we used to have a tagline, something like more than just a library, which I found a little offensive because libraries do a lot more than just books, but oh, also concerts. We have amazing concerts at the Library of Congress and all this stuff is streaming now and book programs all the time and, and famous authors come and the National Book Festival. Emily, I, I mean, Aubrey, I don't know if you've been to the National Book Festival since you've been in Washington, but it's done every uh, around Labor Day sometime in September and it used to be down on the mall uh, until we outgrew that space on the mall, tent after tent after tent. Also, it rained quite a bit, so we moved to the, uh, the convention center. And we've reached capacity with 100,000 people coming every year. And so the last two years, it's been online, of course. But uh, definitely, anybody listening to this should check out the National Book Festival. It's a very exciting event. So That's, that's awesome. I... I'll speak for Aubrey here. I think that's something that I definitely would want to check out. Um, so Aubrey, if you would like to invite me down uh, to DC around that time of year so I can <laughs> check that out, that would be great. Happily. <laughs> um, so our, um, we've talked a bit about, we've talked a bit about some of the things that Aubrey and I and probably our listeners didn't know about the Library of Congress. But are there any other kind of lesser known historical moments that took place at the Library of Congress or just involved, I guess, one of the, the buildings or branches of the library in some way? Well, I love this, this little anecdote because it really ties in with the National Treasure movies is that um, for quite a while, it was like 1921 to 1952, we had the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution at the Library of Congress. They had been transferred to us from the State Department. The then librarian went up in a car and carried them back. And um, they were put on display in the Jefferson Building. I think a couple of years, it was the first time really the Constitution had been on display. And um, it was this um, like shrine-like thing they built. And it's right uh, in the, it was in the Great Hall up on the second floor. And uh, I'll tell you a little later about another movie that was filmed at the library, um, but it, it shows that scene. And then the National Archives gets built. Uh, the Bill of Rights is at the National Archives and they're like, you know, we should really have these, these two other pieces. They, they should be here, not the Library of Congress. And it was an incredible tug of war that went on for several years because the librarian was like, Oh, we're not giving them up, you know, and the president was writing letters and the new archivist at the National Archives had gotten a letter of recommendation from someone big at the Library of Congress who didn't want to get in the middle of this fight. So it's really quite funny when you read the history of this tug of war, you know, this battle over who gets to display it. But in 52, it did go to the National Archives and there was like a big parade and there were tanks guarding them and stuff. So um, I, I just thought since the whole focus of the first movie is on the Declaration of Independence, um, that's, that's fun to know that we had oh um, forced to give them up. And of course, during World War II, they were really worried about Washington being bombed, you know, and especially we're right across from the Capitol. We still worry about it. But um, so they moved a whole bunch of stuff out to uh, Fort Knox, was put in secure vaults there. They sort of went through and figured out which were our treasures to move and move stuff there. So we kept it safe during 
during World War II, and then we finally gave it up to the National Archives. So. Okay, well, first of all, I love knowing that. That is that is a very fun connection here that we did not know existed. Um, but number two, I don't know if you are uh, familiar with this at all, but we've actually um, had the pleasure of speaking with the co-creators of the franchise, um, including Charles Seegers and Oren Aviv on our show before. And they, we, we like to ask them about like, oh, what ideas did you have that didn't make the cut in the movie? And they did mention how, um, either there was there there was built or there was going to be built um these a vault in or around mount rushmore to be able to store the important freedom documents in case of some disaster and so that was part of the original inspiration for using mount rushmore uh, i didn't know about mount rushmore um until the film really but uh, there there are places I think in um, I think Pennsylvania, one of them, like a mine, an old mine deep within, you know, where they have where they have important things stored or will save in case of nuclear disaster or something. So I think there are probably maybe even a couple places around the country that are like bunker-like storage facilities. I think I read about it in 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 some mystery about the Library of Congress or the National Archives about this storage facility. So um, cool. I imagine, you know, they're pretty hush-hush. People aren't talking about them very much, but uh, I, I didn't know about the Mount Rushmore connection. I, that was well, interesting. No, absolutely. And I think this hopefully is a good transition because before we dive into more specific details about our beloved films, as we like to call them, I got to get it on the record, Abby. Have you seen the National Treasure films and how do you feel about the franchise? <laughs> I have seen them. I loved watching them. It was really fun. And even though even though my husband has heard me say a gazillion times, I never want to watch another movie with a chase scene in it. I don't want any more chase scenes. I don't want any more explosions. Don't make me go see those movies. Emily it's says that so all the time. <laughs> This was, these were okay because, oh my gosh, they featured the Library of Congress. How could it get any better than that? And history. And, you know, so they were just fun movies. They really were. Um, and we just felt like we had so much invested in them. You know, how could you not enjoy them? Um, the other thing is they clearly put the Library of Congress on the map in a way that, you know, some people had heard of the Library of Congress. They knew about the excitement after those films were just incredible. The number of people who poured in and and wanted, you know, to see, like you said, the Mount Vernon tour. We had our, you know, not advertised, but there was like a national treasure tour because some of it was having to go behind the scenes. Um, and but lots and lots of congressional offices wanted us to take people on a national treasure tour, or the docents would have their favorite places they would show people for the national treasure tour, and tons of questions. And uh, we, we've been having open houses twice a year, like on President's Day and um, Columbus Day, I think, where we open the main reading room. You don't need a reader card to come. Everybody can come in. We have, we have stations set up from different reading rooms. I have a big Ask a Librarian sign and people come and say, is my grandfather's book here? Or I think my thesis is here. Or, or you know, what can you tell me about guinea pigs? A little boy who had to write a paper, you know? Um, so it, it's a great opportunity. But one of the most popular things is we would show the scene 
from the Library of Congress from the second movie on like a continuous loop on a big video screen. And even people who had seen the movie before would just stand there thrilled and look around the reading room to figure out where it was filmed. So, you know, this anything that brings that much attention to the Library of Congress so that people understand what it's all about is, is just fun. Of course, the aftermath of that is people wanting to know about the Book of Secrets, you know, and the letters and the and honest to God truth. I was at the reference desk two weeks ago and I got a phone call and the person was asking me about classified information at the Library of Congress for presidents. And I was like, well, you know, I did what's called a reference interview. I asked some questions, you know, to try and figure out what he was getting on about. Cause I'm like, well, most classified information is at the National Archives. We have some in our mouth. Well, it was all about the Book of Secrets. He wanted, you know, he, he said, no, no, I mean that book that's there. And when I told him the book was, you know, made by the Disney Corporation, it had been on an exhibit at the library. They lent it to us for a few months and we had that and the John Wilkes prop on, on display. This person was not taking no for an answer. He knew it was there. He said, anyhow, it doesn't matter because somebody's watching the president all the time. Someone's always listening in on the president. So, okay. But a couple of days later, there was a young man there doing research and someone brought him over to talk to me. And he said, they filmed some of the national treasure here, right? Could you show me where it was kind of thing? But um, the other thing that's really funny about the Book of Secrets is when people would say, I've looked in your catalog and there is something called the Book of Secrets. Well, there are a whole lot of books titled the Book of Secrets. There's one in 1902, one in 1927, on up to the 60s and 70s. Um, uh, one was magic tricks, one was miracles, meditations. And there's one that's out in about six editions that's about life skills. That's what the subject heading is, the book of secrets of life skills. So uh, you can't, a lot of people don't know this, but you can't copyright a title. So there's more than one thing called Gone, Gone with the Wind or the book of secrets. But, um, you know, it doesn't matter even if I say, I personally saw the Disney prop in this display case. They know we've got it somewhere. Oh my gosh. This joke that, oh, we hit it down in the stacks with all the stuff about the UFOs and, um, and fraternity secret rituals. We got that question all the time that we have all the fraternity secret rituals. So we have them all hidden oh together somewhere, but I don't know where they are. So I hope everybody realizes I'm joking if you can't see my <laughs> facial expressions. Um, but truthfully, we do not have the book of secrets from the national treasure. Disney took it back. And in fact, I think it's been sold. I saw a YouTube video uh, uh, that there's something called the prop store um, they had a discussion between the guy from there and David Savage, who's a designer, and he's he's showing the whole book and all the attachments and all the different pages in this little YouTube video and talking about what an excellent prop it was and what a good job they did making the paper look old and what do you think about this leather cover so um Wow, what I what I wouldn't have paid to buy that from the prop store, honestly, <laughs> but separately i feel like i could have a whole other conversation with you about the craziest questions you've been asked during your time oh, yeah. like i yeah. can't even imagine um this is probably just the tip of the iceberg <laughs> um, <laughs> probably 
That's amazing. Well, okay. So to dive into some more specifics here, you know, everyone really remembers the Library of Congress, I think, for its appearance in the second National Treasure film, which we will get to. I think a lot of people forget that the Library of Congress makes a brief cameo, at least purportedly, in the first National Treasure movie. And for our listeners who need a reminder, this is when Riley is trying to prove to Ben that the Declaration of Independence can't be stolen. He takes him to the Library of Congress, he pulls out all these documents and says, I'm proving to you that this can't work. So, Abby, can you tell us, did the first movie actually film this scene at the library? It did. It did. I, I went back and rewatched it. It was about three minutes, but I remember when they were filming it um, because several of us got questions from various people, you know, like our supervisors said, hey, can you answer this kind of thing? And it had to do with whether at the Library of Congress, we would actually have a plan for the National Archives. Would we have the architectural blueprints for the National Archives? And we kept saying, no, those would be at the National Archives, not at the Library of Congress. But, you know, it's fiction. It's the willing suspension of disbelief. So when Riley brings out, here's the drawings for the construction tunnel, he never brings out the plans. He said, this is all about the building plans, but here's the, here's the sewage tunnel, and here's the this tunnel and that tunnel, and they do sort of show up. Um, and, and so we're like, okay, whatever, you know, but we do know, we do have a lot of architectural drawings. We do have blueprints in our prints and photographs division, and we have all kinds of ones. So there may be some from some federal buildings, but mostly the federal building plans would be at the National Archives. We, we're, we're the repository for something called the Historical American Building Survey and Historical American Engineering Survey. And so there are photographs and drawings and descriptions that go with those. And so maybe a few federal buildings, most of them are not. Um, but yeah, we do have things like blueprints, but uh, you know, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who works in the manuscript division, and she remembered watching that movie and screaming, they wouldn't be there at the Library of Congress, and if they were, they'd be in the prints and photographs division, not in the main reading room. So I said, yeah, we all kind of did that same scream, but but whatever. So <laughs> it was, <laughs> I, I think it was, you know, it was much smaller and more contained than the filming of, of the second movie. But yes, it was definitely set at, in the Library of Congress. So. That's awesome. If I could ask a really quick follow-up, since since that scene really is centered, or front and center, really, in the main reading room, what could you clarify really quickly what the main reading room is is normally used for compared to the other reading rooms that exist? Like, what's the difference besides the grandeur? Sure. Sure. The grandeur. Well, we think of it as the heart and soul of those of us who work there at the Library of Congress. But, um, but basically you can think of it as kind of the gateway to what we call the general collections, the books and bound periodicals. We have a separate newspaper and current periodical books, all those things on all those shelves that people imagine at the Library of Congress. This is where you request them is in the main reading room. And, and it's, it's primarily humanities and social sciences, as I mentioned. So all those topics you can think of like religion and psychology and literature and art and are, are gonna be focused there. But it's, it's mostly uh, the book collection, if you can think of it that way. 
but like I said, a little something for everyone. The other thing about the library that most people don't realize is it's a closed stack library. Most people are used to using a library by getting a general idea of the call number. You know, it used to be on a card catalog and then it, it's a, a, virtually all libraries now have a computerized catalog. And then you go and browse the shelves and you pull the books off yourself. And it doesn't work that way at the Library of Congress. It's always been a closed stack library where you request items and they're brought to you. But each of the reading rooms has a reference collection, has those first quick look up books, you know, uh, around the reading room. And in the main reading room, it's over 50,000 books. So it's a good sized library in and of itself. And you do see that in scenes in the National Treasury, you see books in the background. So, uh, but for the most part, you are requesting books that used to be on paper slips, and now it's through the computer and staff members are bringing the books to you. So, so that's what the main reading room is about. That, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that clarification. <laughs> You're yeah, welcome. I was, <laughs> uh, I knew they used it, but I wasn't exactly sure, you know, what its main function was. So um, as Aubrey said, more people remember the Library of Congress, right, as being featured in National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets, serving, as you said, as the place where the president's secret book is hidden. So what can you tell us about the filming of National Treasure 2 at the Library of Congress? So excited for this. <laughs> okay, so first of all, uh, the library doesn't let filming interfere with the operation. We're a working, you know, library, working reading room. So everything that has happens has to be filmed after we've shut down. So that, and we're open on Saturdays till five o'clock. So that means starting after five o'clock, all through the night, all through Sunday, into the wee hours of Monday before we reopen is when filming goes on. Um, and there was actually, after this, after the second movie, somebody, a, a staff writer for the Post, uh, was an extra in the movie. And he wrote two pieces in the Washington Post about the hurry up and wait, you know, and he sort of had it. 7.30 p.m., 8.10 p.m., you know, 3.25 a.m. describing, you know, his, his view of things as, a, uh, as an extra. And, um, you know, they, they have to move in all the equipment. Lighting is always a huge deal. Uh, there's always uh, some of my, it's funny because just about everybody who was around for the filming, the people in the public affairs office have all retired. Uh, most of my colleagues who are around for the filming have retired. So I'm like calling all my old buddies saying, what do you remember about this? And what happened? And what, you know, and um, a lot of people remember the hurry up and wait. And somebody remembered uh, talking a lot, if not this film, another film to the uh, person who was like the stand-in, kind of the body double for the main character, you know, that they're, they're not there for all the lighting and all of this and camera angles. They put somebody there who's about the same size and, and get all that stuff in place before the actual actor comes in. So chatting with those people, sending, you know, showing them things about the library. Um, and one, one colleague mentioned, uh, the catering, she called it the food truck out on East Capitol Street, and that it had really good things like uh, lobster and duck. And, and so I was telling another friend, I said, oh, she remembered the food. And they said, oh, yes, yeah, she would. You know, it was just such a typical comment to remember. The other thing about the filming there that's really fascinating is when they go up to that area, 
of the Book of So everything is right. They're walking in from the Great Hall. They walk into the main reading room. You see them go through this little doorway, which actually is open to the public. It's a secret, but it's where it has a big sign on it that says study shelves and Q through Z and stuff like that. And they kind of like sneak in. They run up these circular stairs, which are outside that door. And then they get to that top level up by the bronze statues. So that was all fake. There are no bookshelves up there. People don't go up there. Um, they built all of those bookshelves. They built that whole area to look like the library. Um, but but that was all faked. And one of the things is you, you can't like damage the Library of Congress building. You can't like screw things into the walls. So they had to make it all work that it wouldn't tumble over, but wasn't, you know, firmly attached to the wall. And then what I hadn't really, well, we've always tried to look and figure out where, which place people always ask, well, which one of these balconies, the room's divided into what's called eight alcoves, eight kind of wedges. And that's the top level and which, which one was it in? And so when you look in the film, you see a statue with kind of a sword. You just see the bottom of the sword in one scene and then just catch a glimpse of the other. So it's between the areas representing commerce, which is Columbus and Fulton holding a little um, steamship. And the other one with the sword is St. Paul um, representing religion, Moses and and um, there, there are these big themes around the statues, big sort of white marble goddess-like statues, and they represent religion and commerce and poetry and art, uh, science are all around there. And then there are two bronze statues down on that top balcony level that are actual figures, all male, I might add, that uh, represent uh, that thing. So, so that area they faked was right between Robert Fulton and St. Paul in that area where they built, built all of that. Uh, it is real when they run down the circular stairs, go to the center desk, and it looks like they're going through a secret door, you know, um, and that's the place people always want to see on the National Treasure Tour. Uh, and that opens, and then there are these stairs, open stairs, down to what's called the control room. And this is this giant room under the main reading room where there are books and books on carts to be processed, to be delivered, to be reshelved. And, and you see them running down and then out of there. Um, so, so all of that stuff is real. Um, and then there's some other stuff in the movie that, that's fake, that isn't part of, of the reading room. But, but that, that part is real and you know I could say yeah up there's where they filmed it and there's the doorway down um wow. the one thing you see in the movie that isn't there anymore is this book conveyor system you know when they show them running down and you see all these kind of machines blue and yellow I think uh we did have a book conveyor system it's not there anymore it was um it was removed and I can tell you the whole history of that too if you're interested but uh, sadly it's not there anymore Gotcha. Well, that's, it's actually really cool to hear that so much of what we see is, you know, some of those little details that are just really, really cool looking and, and they, because they're so cool looking, you almost assume that they would be fake additions, you know what I mean, to jazz up the appearance of the movie, but those are the parts that are actually legit. But actually, another quick thing that I, I, I'm realizing, if that, if those bookshelves in that alcove were not there 
you know, are not there usually. It's really interesting to me that they chose to film that scene there and not just on a set and recreating that little alcove. Uh, yeah, I think that's really interesting too. And what somebody else reminded me that I didn't pick up on is that uh, when they shoot the scene sort of across the reading room, you also see books over there. And somebody said, oh, those were totally fake books. She thought it was either wallpaper or one of those, you know, sort of painted things that looks like books, but isn't real books. So, so they really went to a lot of trouble, as you said, to, uh, to fake it up there instead of doing a set. Um, but yeah, they did. So Got it. Um, wow. So as we've been talking about the scenes that we actually do see in the movie, mostly look at this alcove room and the stairwells and a lot of the interior portions of the library. But as you might know, there are several deleted scenes from filming at or purportedly at the library that suggest filming also took place on the roof and also in other places in the building. Can you tell us about any aspects of filming that didn't make it into the final cut? So thankfully there was a YouTube video of deleted scenes so I could check it against rewatching the movie and scene. And in the deleted scenes, they show an exterior one of him walking across this glass ceiling on these little, little metal rods and the glass is cracking under him. And then they do a shot of, of this glass ceiling from below. And that is actually in the great hall, that ceiling. You can walk in and look up and see those rosettes and stuff. I'm pretty sure it does not go to the exterior and they definitely would not have had him you know, walking across it. So that is clearly faked. The other thing I thought about the deleted scenes that was interesting is when Riley and Abigail leave that control room, you know, get out of there. Uh, in the movie itself, it doesn't look like they're in the Library of Congress. It looks like they're in some basement area, but I was pretty sure it wasn't the Library of Congress. I went back and kind of looked over that area. But in the deleted scenes, it does show them in a real area. They come right out of the room and they're in, um, an area in what's called our basement, and they run off into one of the tunnels. We have tunnels uh, connecting the Adams Building, the Jefferson, and the Madison Building, our three buildings on Capitol Hill. There's also a tunnel that connects the Capitol that was built later after 9-11, um, which is a much fancier tunnel. It's marble and display cases and everything for visitors to come between the Visitor Center and the Library of Congress, the Capitol Visitor Center. But the tunnels that connect uh, the three buildings really exist. I, I do laps in them all day, every day, running back and forth between buildings. That's where the conveyor system um, brought the books through overhead. And um, people are pushing book carts there. And uh, that's how we get over to the cafeteria in the Madison building. So they, they do show them running into that. And that got cut out in favor of some faked area, some set or something. So um, those were the only two things that I could see in the deleted scenes. I did see a blog post from our uh, head of public affairs who was around for all of the filming. And he said when they were trying to shoot some scenes outside, there was a, a big storm, that there was uh, really a problem with the weather. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, the other exterior scenes, you see them running up the front steps, you know, both they are and then and then the whole FBI and and those are all real. Those, that's what our exterior of our building and the front steps look like. So. Wow. 
that that's awesome i i love that they you know even if they didn't film exactly like you were saying on on the ceiling uh even if they didn't film it exactly there they still took what was in the building and you know recreated that to try to kind of bring it in into the film so speaking of I guess bringing things from the film into real life in National Treasure 2 you know we've talked about Ben's uh the the president's secret book that Ben uh finds he he locates it in the special collection section of the Library of Congress. Now, we know that the president's secret book does not exist, but is there such a thing in real life as the special collection section of the Library of Congress? There are so many special collection section. It's it's amazing. But we do have something called rare book and special collections division. The rare book reading room, rare book and special collections is in is in the Jefferson building. It's just upstairs from the main reading room. But we also have the manuscript division that's over in the Madison building. We have geography and map. We have so we have special collections in all those areas and really special things. Like like the manuscript division has the papers of 23 presidents from George Washington up to Calvin Coolidge before National Archives started building these presidential libraries or the presidents themselves, we have the papers uh, at the Library of Congress. So, uh, you know, George Washington was a surveyor and uh, I think there's some maps in his, in his things, I'm not positive. We do have uh, the first map, 1507, that actually uses the word America on it. Uh, we have a rough draft of the Declaration of Independence in which you see Jefferson's handwriting and then Ben Franklin's crossing it out and writing something else. You have several different handwritings. Um, You know, it just goes, we have two copies of the Gettysburg address that Lincoln gave to both of his secretaries, you know, handwritten out copies. We have two of those. Uh, Gutenberg Bible, you know, we have a a copy on vellum, one of the three perfect copies of the Gutenberg Bible. And, and we do have, you know, medieval manuscripts and books of ours. And it's just impossible to tell you uh, all of the special things we have that we treasure as much as, you know, the book of secrets. Um, uh, The, the uh, American Folklife Collection, I actually also got this telephone call recently where somebody was calling um, from an Indian nation saying, uh, we don't have copies of some of our sacred songs anymore. Do you think you might have them at the Library of Congress? And in fact, our, our American Folklife Center, some of the earliest recording technologies on through the years, field recordings, is they have, they went out and recorded um, many of these sacred songs. And so uh, it is possible that we could could return it. The, the other thing that always amuses me about, um, about the Library of Congress is that we have some really weird three-dimensional objects, things that you would think of more likely to be in the Smithsonian than the Library of Congress, but that they're always just kind of a fun little addition when you're showing people. Charles Dickens' walking stick that he used when he was on tour in the United States, a piece of Tom Thumb's wedding cake. They they did 
Yeah, I know, in our manuscript division, uh, locks of Thomas Jefferson's hair. There's this whole frame thing with different locks of his hair, which I found really creepy looking when I saw it. It was mm -hmm. kind of gross. But, um, you know, Walt Whitman, we have an incredible Walt Whitman collection, including when he used to go and visit uh, wounded soldiers here in Washington, he, he would have like a little haversack with him, like a little messenger bag. And sometimes he'd have an orange in there and sometimes he'd have writing paper, he'd have his notebooks and we have that haversack. So, um, and quilts in the, arm, in the American Folklife Center. So, and of course the really big favorite, the contents of Abraham Lincoln's pockets on the night he was assassinated. We have a whole collection of those. So um, yeah, people just don't realize the weird stuff. But I, I guess when you talk about um, special collections, when I think about the Library of Congress and when you say, well, what's the main reading room known for? So I think about the breadth and depth of our collections, like how many things. So you talk about all these special, cool, interesting things, you know, but we have over 400 books like on Lincoln's assassination alone, thousands of books on Abraham Lincoln, but just on the assassination alone, over 400 books. But then you could look throughout the library besides the you know, contents of his pockets, there are all these broadsides in the rare book, which are essentially posters you know, with the reward for the capture of the conspirators. And then we would have photographs in our, our prints and photographs, there's a, a really famous photograph of the gallows that were built to hang the conspirators, you know, the hanging of the conspirators. And um, we have a life mask from Lincoln, not his death mask, but we have a life mask. So you could take Abraham Lincoln, thousands of newspaper articles, sermons about Abraham Lincoln's death, and you could just like track it throughout all the different collections and the different formats and, and memories that people have and, and Lincoln's papers himself and Ulysses Grant. And, um, and I discovered when I, was, when I was sort of looking up the stuff to say, oh, what, what do we have about you know, Lincoln's assassination? So we have the papers, we not only have papers of presidents, Supreme Court justices, mostly prominent American individuals, but I didn't know we had John Thompson Ford's papers, and he was the owner of Ford's Theater. So we have his papers at the Library of Congress. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what I think of the extraordinary collecting that we do. Oh, and a letter from Queen Victoria to Mary Todd Lincoln expressing her sympathies, even though they had never met, you know, what a loss it was to lose her husband and for the country as a whole. So. Wow. So, uh, you know, speaking of, you know, our podcast, we obviously we focus on national treasure, but you mentioned a little bit before that, you know, some other things have been filmed at the Library of Congress. Uh, what do you have examples of what those kinds of things were and how did their on site filming kind of compare with that of the National Treasure 2 project? So you've actually come to the right source to ask this. I think this is why I got suggested for your podcast is uh, years ago, I wrote an essay on the Library of Congress in fiction and film. So this was uh, well before National Treasures was filmed, but I did 
watch a whole bunch of movies that purportedly had a scene set at the Library of Congress, including that summer my kids would come home and find me watching weird stuff like G.I. Jane and Logan's Run and think their mother had lost their mind. But, you know, somebody had said, oh, the Library of Congress is in that film, so I had to watch it. Um, but the one that happened right after National Treasures is J. Edgar, about J. Edgar Hoover. And we were around for the filming of that. And actually when they were scouting the location, Clint Eastwood was fascinated by the card catalog. The card catalog used to be in the main reading room in these beautiful semicircular cases. And then it expanded and expanded and expanded. And when we renovated the main reading room in the late eighties, early nineties, the card catalog got moved off onto a deck. It's not beautiful anymore. It's still there, but you know, people were using the computers instead, so that got moved. Um, but Clint Eastwood was just fascinated by the card catalog and wanted to work it into the movie. And so in one of the opening scenes, you have Jay Edgar walking Naomi Watts, Leonardo DiCaprio walking Naomi Watts into the main reading room. And he's pointing out the card catalog and he sort of implies that he invented the card catalog. So this was another one where we got loads and loads of questions after people saw the movie. Did, did J. Edgar Hoover invent the card catalog? He actually worked at the Library of Congress. He was there while he was putting himself through law school at night at GW and he lived a few blocks away. So they went back through records. So he was a messenger and then a clerk, they think a cataloging clerk. So he certainly knew about the, uh, the, the card catalog and it was fairly newish. He did not invent it. But what he took with him from working at the Library of Congress, and I guess probably thinking like a librarian, is the system of organization. And he started a card file at the FBI where he kept track of everyone, thousands and thousands of cards. So, so that's the piece. But in order to show a card catalog, they built one. They built this fake, like a facade of a card catalog that goes down to, to this sort of walkway into the main reading room, only eight drawers open, but it's this whole long card catalog. And, um, and after the movie was filmed, they were just gonna throw it away. And some of my colleagues got pieces of it. They, they took it down to our, our carpentry shop, got it cut up and they had like pieces of this fake card catalog in their um, cubicles for years. So, so that was pretty funny. Um, I think I mentioned, well, the, the other one, if, if you ask, when I, when I have a group of students, I'm teaching a class too, and I'm walking them in, I say, how many of you saw National Treasures? And at least 90% will say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'll tell the other 10%, you gotta watch it, it's so much fun. There was a film called Born Yesterday and they've made it twice in the 1950s and then 1993. The first one was uh, Judy Holliday and um, William Holden, it's a wonderful movie. And then the uh, later one was with uh, Melanie Griffith and Don Johnson. And the scene in the first one at the Library of Congress, they are in the Great Hall looking at those two documents. So you see the shrine and those two documents, and she's learning all about American. Uh, she's the wife of a, no, she's the girlfriend of a mobster and she's not very educated and he hires this guy to tutor her. So they come to the Library of Congress to learn about American stuff. Um, in the second one, you don't have that scene, but you have them in the main reading room um, and, and Melanie Griffith is reading something and doesn't understand. So he points to, 
a dictionary for her to go and look at this big unabridged dictionary and she makes this crack that her first apartment was smaller than that dictionary but that was filmed there legally blonde too has a scene shot in the main reading room only Reese Witherspoon wasn't there they shot the scene and then they kind of you know I don't know, green screen, whatever they put her, they it's put her in there. So um, <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit of a cheat. Um, I'm trying to think there were, there were, oh, one of my very favorite ones is from 1952. It's called The Thief. It's a black and white movie. It's silent except for sounds in the background. There's no dialogue. And it's um, a spy movie. The guy works at the Atomic Energy Commission. He's He's taking pictures of secrets and the Library of Congress is where, where the film, the microfilm is dropped. And so there's scenes in the main reading room hiding it behind a book. And then another scene hiding it in the card catalog. And it's, it's just this funny little movie, but you know, the Library of Congress is very prominent in it. So I like, I like that one too. And of course the other one that I've been waiting and waiting for them to film at the Library of Congress was the Lost Symbol. I thought after National Treasure put us on the map, then when you read Dan Brown's Lost Symbol, there's a huge scene set at the Library of Congress. And he has so many details in where he's talking. I'm sure either he or a research assistant went on one of the docent-led tours because it's the highlights that they usually point out that he's talking about. But in that one, he escapes from the Capitol. They escape from the Capitol into the Library of Congress via that tunnel that was unfinished at the time. And then they're in the Great Hall where he goes on and on and on. Then they go into the main reading room and then they uh, escape through the conveyor system, like physically. And that's when I always talk about the willing suspension of disbelief because they would have had to chop off all their limbs in order to fit in there. But um, anyhow, so here I am like, why haven't they filmed it yet? Why haven't they made it? This will put us on the map even more. You know, this would be great. And um, hadn't heard anything about it, anything about it. And then I got an Ask a Librarian question um, back in May. I think it's just in May. And it was somebody up in Canada who needed some details about the main reading room um, because they were building a set for the filming of what is now this series on Peacock, I guess. And, um, and you know, she said, we can't come down there to film because of the pandemic. And I was like, you know, things are starting to open up. Maybe talk to our public affairs again. She's like, no, no, we're just going to build the set. And first she was talking about building like a wedge, like one of the alcoves, one of the chunks of the seats. And, and then she would say, well, we're not going to build all the way to third balcony, just to the first balcony you know, that scene. And then, and so for a couple of weeks, I was running in and taking pictures just with my cell phone of what the chair looked like and what the medallion on the chair was and the rug. And, and then what did the books on the shelf in an alcove look like? And the lighting, I was taking all these pictures of this horrible fluorescent tubes and these mental things. And so I just went and watched on Peacock. So I'm waiting and waiting to, you know, see the Library of Congress. And um, when I went on Peacock and looked at the scene the other day, they don't do it in the main reading room. They say this is a room below the main reading room. I don't know if you've seen it. They do 
use like the cast iron shelves like we have. We worry about fire a lot. And, and those ugly fluorescent lighting tubes are there and sort of the scenes that, you know, signs on the end of the shelf. So they did try and mimic some of the stuff, but it's clearly not the main reading room. They call it a room in the basement or something oh, underneath the main reading room. That's a but, shame. Um, yeah. Well, so, you know, uh, we we actually recently released an episode about the lost symbol and comparing and contrasting to national treasure. Uh, Emily watched the whole series. I don't know, Emily, if you have any commentary on what we just learned, which is very fascinating. It's it's unsurprising. It it didn't look like it. It it didn't look as good as it did in National Treasure. Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's fair. That sounds fair. Um, Okay, so as we as we start wrapping up this amazing conversation today, you know, you've you've definitely mentioned that National Treasure as a franchise has certainly increased public awareness and interest in the Library of Congress, which is so exciting. We know having spoken to the creators that that was one of their goals of this franchise and in going to so many different historically relevant locations and actually filming on site whenever possible. So it's amazing to hear that that actually happened. But you know, we have spoken to folks at some of these sites before who didn't totally love the portrayal of their particular site in the movie, like the final cut. I know we, for example, um, folks at Independence National Historical Park in, in Philadelphia with Independence Hall, um, they said the first movie certainly increased interest, but there were so many liberties taken with different historical facts that happened there that it bugged them a little bit. So all in all, all things considered, how did you feel about the overarching portrayal of the library in this franchise? Uh, I, I think anything that will get people interested in history or learning about the Library of Congress, being fascinated, anything that will draw them to the Library of Congress works for me, even if they take some liberties. The, the, the Library of Congress is it is open to everyone. Anyone 16 and above can get a reader ID card and come into the main reading room and most of the other reading rooms, some you have to be 18. Anyone can come as a visitor on a tour. You have to do a timed entry pass right now, but you know, you can come and see the beautiful, beautiful Great Hall, see our exhibits. We have amazing exhibits. They're up online if you can't come. Um, you know, just to get anyone interested enough to go to our website and explore the millions of things that we have digitized on our website and the exhibits and the concerts and the events and the things we have. We, we really do try and be all things to all people. I, I think the name Library of Congress really makes a lot of people think it's just for Congress or just for some elite number of people or just the government. But we're serving everybody. We have you know, we have things on our website for families and kids and our teachers page is the best thing we do. And um, so I think any attention that if people write a letter to us and say, is the book of secrets real? And I can say no, but, you know, take a look at this and this and this um, is, is a really good thing. So I'm okay if they take some liberties. And in, in fact, they didn't, you know, take that much. And as I said, I'm, I'm the literature person. So fiction is fine with me. Yeah. Well, you know, Emily and I are obviously no experts, but we have said since starting this podcast that we really feel like 
fiction is such a powerful teaching tool and such a powerful common denominator with which to collect people and start further conversations about whatever topic that may be. So, so I think we're on the same wavelength there for sure. Um, so the one of the ways that we always like to wrap up these interviews is what we call our speed round, um, which is just a series of statements um, about in this case, uh, the Library of Congress, that some folks might assume uh, based on having watched National Treasure. And so some of these things you've kind of touched on already in the preceding conversation, but ultimately this is like setting the record straight, final take homes, true or false, that's what we're looking for here. So are you ready for our speed round? I am ready, go okay. for it. Fantastic. Number one, anyone can visit and tour the Library of Congress. Absolutely anyone. Uh, as I said, right now, since the pandemic started, we've had timed entry piece uh, tickets. It used to be you could just walk in, but there, there are real concerns with building capacity. We get thousands of people a day. So right now, I think they said timed entry, there's 6,000 tickets a day. So you can get in, but group tours, classes of kids, lots and lots of people come to see that part of the library. Fantastic. All right, number two, everyday visitors to the library can access the main reading room. Yeah, I think I just explained that. You have to get a reader ID card. It takes like 10 minutes. You can pre-register online. You just have to have a form of ID, like a driver's license or a passport. And it isn't just Americans. Like I said, people from all over the world come. We hope when they come into the main reading room, it isn't just to look around and say, oh, beautiful. We hope they're curious about something and will say to us, you know, I want to know about my family's genealogy or I want to know if Queen Victoria was on the side of the South in the Civil War. And if they don't at that time talk to us, at least when they walk in and are inspired by the main reading room, they'll get on our website. They'll send us, ask a librarian questions. You know, you could write to us and, and say, what was Queen Victoria's part in the American Civil War? So we get thousands of those questions uh, a year. And um, I, I love when people are inspired by the Library of Congress and it piques their curiosity. I mean, that's a really great uh, trait to have is curiosity about anything or everything. And so, um, you know, my, my, my favorite thing that anybody's ever said to me is this is the greatest use of my taxpayers' money ever when they were talking about the Library of Aww. Congress. So, so I, I want everybody to think of it that way. This is your library, your tax dollars at work and make use of us. Well, if that isn't the most beautiful advertisement, I'm not sure what is. Um, <laughs> okay, number three, again, we touched on this before, but for the record, the Library of Congress houses architectural information about federal buildings. So, yes, we would have some, and we have lots of books about federal buildings that do have some architectural information in it, and sometimes little plans and things like that. But in terms of the kind of stuff they show in the movie for the National Archives, that would be more likely at the National Archives than the Library of Congress. The original documents would more likely be at the National Archives. But yes, we, we certainly have blueprints and, and um, architectural information. 
Fantastic. All right, next, the Library of Congress conducts research on historical texts. Uh, yes, certainly. Uh, we have all kinds of historians in our in our manuscript division and uh, well throughout the library. So yes, we do research on um, historical text. If you're talking about research, like preservation kinds of things. I know you've touched on this a lot. We have a huge preservation directorate. We have many, many people. Everybody thinks everyone who works at the Library of Congress is a librarian, but no, in fact, we have chemists. We have all kinds of scientists working in our uh, preservation um, directorate. And they, I, I saw some, you know, in our list of fun facts, it says, in fiscal year 2020, they performed 6.8 million preservation actions. So uh, they, I think they show some imaging, well, they do in the movie, the hypospectral. Of course, we have that kind of equipment at the library and that rough draft of the, um, of the Declaration of Independence I mentioned in Jefferson's handwriting and then, oh, that's Ben Franklin's handwriting, oh, that's so-and-so's. Uh, maybe about 10 years ago, they, they conducted tests on that kind of thing. And it was a really significant find that, that had been crossed out underneath. You know, you really couldn't see it when you looked at it, was Jefferson had written the word subjects as subjects and crossed it out and wrote uh, citizens above it. So we're no longer subjects of the British monarchy and, and change it to that. So in, you know, finding that using these scientific tools to find something as significant as that in his writing um, is really cool. I also remember when I first started at the Library of Congress, I, I knew this person um, from our kids going to nursery school together and she worked in preservation and she invited me over to see her workstation where she had Rhapsody in Blue manuscript of the, of the song, you know, Gershwin song on her desktop and she was working on that. And it was just like, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> Amazing. Wow, that, that subjects to citizens is gonna stick with me for a while. I, that's really interesting. Um, okay, and good lead in because our next speed round statement is the Library of Congress employs a director of document conservation, which was Abigail's title in the second movie. Yeah, that's not the exact title, but yes, we have we have a director, a chief, or whatever they call it, and um, it's a big deal job. And we have, you know, people working there and internships. People come from all over the world to intern in that division, and and I'm sure we work closely with, uh, you know, with the National Archives, with the Folger, with all these other institutions that have this kind of expertise. Mm -hmm. um, I think another one besides the Declaration of Independence, they they did uh, some imaging with uh, L'Enfant's original plan for Washington DC, the 1791, and they found some streets underneath that weren't that weren't there. So um, it, it, it's really it's really fun and exciting to see this kind of new technology. You know, as as every generation gets better and better, to to what they can uncover. I was just at the Phillips Gallery of Art, Phillips Collection, um, and there was a whole thing on Picasso and they did this kind of imaging and they were showing paintings that were behind the final painting that either he was just reusing canvases or something else. So, so this topic is being 
clearly has piqued a lot of people's imagination and, and they're, they're showing different aspects of what used to be kind of behind the scenes. But I had mentioned our website, if you go on the website for our preservation office, it's not only for professionals, but they have lots and lots of information about home care of your treasures and how you take care of books, you know, that are deteriorating or what you can do if something gets wet. Um, so it's lots of, it's lots of great, you know, information for the ordinary person. Well, you have honestly shared so many tidbits that I think should be fodder for National Treasure 3, but who am I? Um, <laughs> the last speed round for you today, Abby, once and for all, for the record, definitively here on National Treasure Hunt, is the Library of Congress home to the President's Book of Secrets? I hate to break anyone's hearts by saying this, but no, it is not. And saying I hate to break anyone's hearts, I can tell you there are people out there that no matter what I say, no matter that you've seen the prop, I've seen the prop, they're going to believe um, that that we are home to it. Just not true, but we do have other things called Book of Secrets, just not that one. Very nice. And this uh, is my favorite question that I get the opportunity to ask everyone who is so kind to take the time to do an interview with us. From your perspective, what do you hope viewers of National Treasure take away from the film franchise regarding the Library of Congress or even American history as a whole? Um, I, I hope their curiosity is piqued about American history. I certainly hope, as it has done for thousands of people, that it draws them to the Library of Congress so they can learn more about our riches and that it is really the people's library, not just Congress's library. So I do hope they take take that away from the film and we'll come and see us now that pandemic restrictions are lifting, come on back to DC and we'll welcome you with open arms. Well, we certainly will be doing that. We can't wait to come pay you a visit, but in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us and having this conversation today. You're very welcome. It's been, it's been great fun doing this. I appreciate you asking me. As per usual, Emily, I cannot <laughs> believe how much we just learned. That was absolutely amazing. Oh my goodness, I cannot get over it. I can't wait to go and visit again. I mean, you and I have been to the Library of Congress before and we loved it, but mm -hmm. with all this added context, I'm just even more excited, you know? It's, it's going to be great when we get a chance to go there and really kind of dive into all the stuff that we just learned couldn't agree more. Um, I don't know about you. I have some favorite tidbits that I learned first and foremost, you know, you and I always love when we can juxtapose like history with science, right? And mm -hmm. I cannot get over the fact that like modern scientific instruments were fairly, you know, recently used to discover that a previous iteration of the Declaration of Independence, like a draft version, used different language than what we're all accustomed to seeing, specifically replacing the word subjects with citizens. That like blows my mind. Could you imagine subjects? Could you imagine? That would have given a totally different vibe to the document. To the document, to our country, like what? <laughs> well, that honestly was one of my favorite parts as well. 
I do have to say that I had another favorite part, which is the fact that there used to be a book conveyor system in the Library of Congress. We actually see this in National Treasure. Abby, you know, informed us that it's, it's no longer there. But what I thought was really interesting is that the conveyor system used to take books from lower levels up to higher levels to help make the process of going and getting books and bringing them places just a lot easier. And that's just one of those little tidbits that was in the film that we saw the conveyor system in the background. But the fact that it definitely like it used to be there is just really, really cool. I mean, how about the fact that in a way, National Treasure is like a pop culture archive of the fact that that used to exist. Like, <laughs> But hey, here's one other point. Abby mentioned that they there's like a whole geography and map section of the library. And I'm just saying, just, you know, you know me. I really like to throw out ideas for National Treasure 3, you know? I think National Treasure 3 should totally incorporate the geography and map section just to keep the Library of Congress as a consistent theme throughout all the movies. I mean, you can't have it in the first two movies and then not put it in the third. Am I right? That is completely true. I mean, I think they should just start paying you right now. I know. I know. Well, you know, as I've told Charles and Oren, they can take all my ideas. I just need to have this you know, audio recording to prove that they were my ideas just for my own benefit and well-being. I don't need the money. I just need like the the mental knowledge, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, we hope you all learned some interesting stuff from this episode as well. And maybe you even feel inspired to go visit the Library of Congress yourself. And you have time to do that. You know why? Do you know why I am? I think I do, but why don't you tell the people, Aubrey? (laughs) Because this has been the final episode of National Treasure Hunt Season 4. That means you have a little bit of an off-season to play with for the next couple of months. Season 5 of our show will begin airing in July 2022. And I do have a quick piece of business to wrap things up here today. Some of the first episodes of next season will include... Um, how do I put this, sort of a review of a few very pertinent books that everyone here who's listening probably doesn't know about, but we're going to tell you about in case you want to acquire said books to follow along with us as we, you know, kick off next season. So specifically, this is a short series of book called the Gates Family Mystery Series, published by Disney Press and authored by Katherine Hapka. And so these are four books. They're going to be some of the early episodes of next season. Grab the books now if you want to follow along. Of course, you don't have to. You'll still be able to listen and enjoy. Uh, You're probably going to want to know what these books say, whether or not you go ahead and buy them, you know? (laughs) This is true. (laughs) And everyone, as per usual, we have a lot coming in the off-season on our social media feeds. So as a reminder, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Podcast. We are also available for your listening ears on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Good Pods. Go ahead, like, subscribe, rate, review, do whatever you can on those various platforms to let us know your thoughts, to let us know that you're listening. Also, 
go ahead and take a peek at our link tree, which is in our social media bios, to go ahead and check out our merch store where you, you, yes, you, can represent National Treasure Hunt in any way you would like with t-shirts or notebooks or anything of the sort. So that officially wraps up season four, National Treasure Hunt in the books. (laughs) You get it? In the books? (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, that's uh, that's our cue to go. But hey, don't forget to follow along with us on social media, like Emily said, throughout the off season, because you know, we are always sharing bonus content and news about the franchise. If If anything happens in the world of National Treasure, you're going to hear it first on our social media feeds. We so look forward to hearing from you in the coming months and for you to hear us again in just a couple months' time for season five premiering in July. But hey, until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt. (laughs) 